right now in the United States, you've got uh, the IRS since 2014 has said that Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies are property. FinCEN has said it's money. And uh, the CTFC has implied that it's commodities uh, like gold. And so you have to have some agreement about what this is. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast, your weekly audio masterclass on converting leads to revenue. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot. Let's do this. Our guest is Michael Turpin, an American investor, entrepreneur, and public relations executive. In 2013, he co-founded BitAngels, an investment network for blockchain blockchain technology startups, and the first angel network for Bitcoin and digital currency startups with 500 international investors. In 2014, Michael founded Transform Group, a Bitcoin and blockchain marketing firm headquartered in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He also runs Coin Agenda, the leading conference series connecting mainstream investors with blockchain and cryptocurrency investors. In 2018, Michael sued AT&T for $23.8 million in, compensa- in compensatory damages and, 20, and $200 million in punitive damages, claiming that the company failed to protect his cell phone data and leading to hackers stealing $24 million worth of cri- cryptocurrency. Uh, he was a victim of SIM card swapping fraud, a method used to steal one's phone number in order to access their crypto wallets. Uh, Michael, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen podcast. Happy to be here. We got to start by ragging on AT&T. For, there's a bunch <laughs> of questions I want to ask, but let me tell you my AT&T story. It's not as good sure. as you but I'll start with mine. So when I was 30 years old, I was recruited by a gaming company to which uh, was based in Denver. I moved out there. We took it public on the NASDAQ exchange, raised about 10 million bucks and um, spent it pretty, pretty quick too. And uh, about 18, I, I think it was a, gosh, maybe 18 months into it, I was in an executive meeting. I was the head of marketing and it was the CFO and the controller. And the controller says, you know, I don't think we had any problems. We got at least 2 million bucks left in the bank. And the CFO says, actually, it's not quite uh, 2 million anymore. It's more like 1 million. And then the CEO goes, well, actually, it's not really 1 million anymore. It's more like half a million. And I thought, okay, time to start thinking about my next move. So I left the company, moved back home, and I had this really killer pad, and I, I, I subbed it to a friend of mine. And when she left, she never returned the cable box. And so I forgot about it. I didn't know anything about it, but I, I went to buy a home in L.A., you know, five years later, and my credit score was just terrible because of this fucking credit box, that, the card box that was not returned to AT&T. So I call AT&T to fix it up and I say, hey, I'm so sorry. They say, okay, well, fine, just pay this bill and we'll take it off your credit report. Well, I pay the bill, they don't take it off the credit report and I wound up paying an extra point on my loan. And ever since then, I've never spent a nickel on AT&T, even though they got the iPhone first. I waited until someone else got it just so that I didn't have to give them a nickel. But now I see you actually have the coup de gras AT&T story. 
Uh, well, obviously, uh, the cable division, uh, I think at that time, DirecTV or whatever, is completely different than the uh, mobility division. But uh, this is really, a, you know, a, a problem across um, multiple phone carriers. And it's something that, aside from my, you know, federal um, lawsuit against uh, the AT&T for their, their responsibility in, in, in my case, um, I think that it's something that going forward, uh, I've also reached out to the FCC, um, who can, you know, mandate that changes happen in the way that uh, telcos in the United States uh, safeguard data. Uh, and, you know, they, they slowly uh, started protecting data when it came to uh, robocalling. And uh, it took years for, you know, new actions to come around, and they finally did. But, uh, you know, just the simple act of mandating that a, tel a telephone company uh, you know, protect your, your, your pin code by making a pass fail. So if you go to a bank and you tell the teller, I'm sorry, I forgot my uh, ATM uh, pin code. Can you just do it for me? They can't, right? You have to go to the fraud department and like say you lost it or whatever, and they'll regenerate a new one. Uh, there's, there's a structure that means that an employee of Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whatever, can't just look up your pin code and take money out of your account. Uh, unfortunately, and this is across most industries, you, you, you have to punch in a pin code, even for, you know, Delta Airlines or Marriott. And, um, you know, it's just shocking to me that a place where uh, the, the maximum amount of damage can be done, it's not just cryptocurrency. This is also done with sometimes um, bank accounts, with uh, people going and uh, stealing uh, social media accounts and doing damage with, with uh, criminals. Um, even going in and applying for new lines of credit in your name, uh, all the things you can do with the digital identity theft. And this has been going on for quite some time. And so obviously the putative part of our case um, is that, you know, we you know believe, as my lawyers say on evidence and belief, that AT&T senior management knew about this a long time uh, before my case came around and, and didn't do anything to, to change their practices, which again could be, completely averted if they simply had a pass fail. If when you go into a store, you're, 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 or you call on the phone or whatever, you're, you're, you say, okay, what's your you know, four digit or in the high security cases like mine, six digit pin code, they say, punch it in. Or a robot voice says, punch it in. And if, they, if it's not correct, you say, I'm sorry, you have to try it again. And it's simply pass fail. It's called a covered password. In the case of uh, AT&T and, quite frankly, most of the other uh, telcos, um, anybody who works there, including um, agents who are not even AT&T union employees, they're just, you know, people who are hired by the retail store, which is owned by a third party, um, they still have the equivalent of White House, you know, high security access to your account. They can just go in, they can say... Um, yeah, okay, um, you know, you came in here, your ID didn't work, but I believe you, I'm going to put in the thing that, that you showed me an ID, and then I can just, on my own authority, a 19-year-old kid in a retail store, change your, your, your card without ever calling you. And that's what happened to you? That's exactly what happened to me. Well, so what have you learned from it in terms of, like, now how do you store your cryptocurrency is there is there a workaround to keep cryptocurrency safe? Well, the workaround is for AT and T and the others to change their practices. Because That's the only um, way, otherwise, your crypto is always a risk. 
Well, it, it, it depends on what you're talking about. I didn't lose any Bitcoin. I didn't lose any Ethereum. These were all uh, things that came from uh, native wallets and native wallets are designed by the manufacturers of the currency. And there are, I would say until they change their policies, there is no way to ensure that a really top hacker um, can't go in, bribe someone at AT&T because there's long evidence that they've been bribing these kids who are usually about 18 or 19 years old, first job that they got. And, um, you know, there have been people already jailed for this um, in, in a famous case where about 50 different people were hacked during uh, a period of time, including the consensus 2019 um, uh, blockchain week conference in New York. Um, there was a, again, 19 year old, uh, same age as uh, my guy at, at the AT&T store who, uh, who, uh, who, you know, we contend was bribed and upon evidence and belief as my lawyers say. Um, this other guy went to jail because, uh, um, you know, they, they found that he took $5,000 to turn over 50, uh, uh, 50 phone numbers. And that's what these kids do. They're like, you know, minimum wage or barely above it. And they get contacted by these gags to say, uh, Hey, how'd you like to make some extra money? All you have to do is just do as we say, and we'll give you a hundred bucks a number. Well, you know, hundred bucks a number and they make, you know, millions on, 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 on a couple of the ones that they're able to get through. And where did the money wind up going? Do you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, we were able to track it. Um, the the cryptocurrency, which again was uh, smaller cryptocurrencies, uh, were uh, then moved to an offshore exchange and quickly exchanged for Bitcoin. And um, you know, we were able to follow that whole trail. Uh, and um, you know, we we we. We have we have we have we have a confession from the main uh, person involved, and we've got a judgment against uh, one of the criminals and uh, a partial settlement for one of the other criminals. So there's no doubt of what what happened in terms of the actual uh, movement and what the criminal gang did. Um, but we believe that AT and T uh, is liable because had they had better security, which they've been you know ordered to have better security under various uh, um, federal. Um, you know, uh, regulations and, uh, um, you know, my, my lawyers can, can explain all the different, uh, you know, statutes that they, uh, they, they have violated in, in, in their, in their actions. Um, but, um, you know, if they, if they had done the simple protection, of just covering the password, uh, none of this would have been possible. So, um, look, I know there's so many people out there talking about crypto this and crypto that, and you know this stuff inside out. You know, some of us are still trying to figure out what the hell it is. So let's give you the chance here to tell us very succinctly, what is cryptocurrency? Sure. So cryptocurrency is effectively a public blockchain. Uh, I think that cryptocurrency is not a great word because uh, for the most part, it's not treated um, by most governments in the world as a currency. It's treated as property or as a commodity. They call it a crypto commodities. That might be a, a better word. But effectively, uh, Bitcoin was the first uh, cryptocurrency uh, and the first blockchain. Uh, that's where the concept came from. And Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the person or persons under a pseudonym, uh, who created the white paper in uh, late 2008 uh, to you know kind of bring cryptocurrency into the world. And the idea was it was a response to the 2008, uh, you know, meltdown of the markets and massive money printing and bailouts and all the games that the uh, central banks have been playing since we went into a, you know, fiat world that's not backed by gold. Um, 
really to look for a better, uh, you know, kind of hard money uh, to to back uh, stores of value than and and to have a peer to peer uh, payment system was the original uh, court sort of concept of the eight page uh, white paper, which anybody in the world can look up on the internet. Uh, the uh, Bitcoin white paper. It's only eight pages long, and that's what everything developed from. And then in in January, uh, you know, Satoshi, you know, did what he said he was going to do, and he created the Genesis block. So, a blockchain is a is a distributed ledger. It's run on thousands of computers all around the world. It's not owned or run by anyone. It's, it's open source code. When you say distributed ledger, it's a spreadsheet. Well, it's more than a spreadsheet. It is actually a network of computers where anything that is done on one is then copied onto all the other nodes of the network. So in other words, if you have 10,000 computers running uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and 9,800 of them shut down, uh, you know, just like the internet, you know, the internet was, was uh, you know, modeled as a, as a distributed architecture. So that in the event of a nuclear war, you wouldn't have a disruption if there were any, you know, two nodes left on the network that could connect each other and you didn't have the former, you know, hub and spokes model that, peer, you know, um, that uh, the client server architecture and mainframe computers were built on. Um, and so the internet was the original breakthrough that really enabled uh, uh, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain to exist. And what, what the original blockchain as, uh, you know, proposed by uh, Satoshi did was it created an original innovation based on putting about five or six existing technologies together in a brilliant manner. And it has sustained, you know, all sorts of attacks and all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, things that would have, uh, you know, perhaps killed other uh, experiments and it has grown from something that for its first year and a half didn't even have a marketplace. It was just traded among miners and uh, the main use was gambling. They say, well, these things will be worth something someday. Maybe I have a thousand Bitcoin, you have a thousand Bitcoin, let's play dice. And the very first instance of some somebody buying something wasn't until uh, it was about a year and a half out uh, in uh, May of, uh, of uh, 2010, about 11 years ago, when um, you know one miner paid another miner ten thousand bitcoin to buy him a pizza. Why are yeah, there so fair. many different types of cryptocurrency? Because Bitcoin is a type, Ethereum is a type, Dogecoin is a type. You actually, as part of your business, do what's called an ICO, an initial not not public offering, but coin offering, where you actually help organizations that are launching new coins make a market for those coins, yeah? Well, ICO is not even a term that's used anymore. That was kind of a term from 2017 and 18, and uh, I wasn't the one who was staging them. We were simply doing marketing or advisory work for other companies who were innovating that model. Um, so we worked with the very first company to do an initial coin offering. Um, yeah, it's, it's again, like cryptocurrency is sort of an unfortunate word because if they simply called it token starter, like Kickstarter, it would actually be a little bit more relevant because it's not its not an offering of a security. Um, you know, under the US SEC, under Clayton, uh, Jay Clayton, the, you know, the, the past uh, uh, chairman of the SEC uh, under Trump, uh, he basically looked and said, you know, I think most of these things are securities, prove to me that they're not, as opposed to actually having any regulation. He went back and said, well, we have the 1933 Act and we have the Howey test, which was a Supreme Court 
uh, ruling on what was and wasn't a security based on the differences between orange futures and wine futures. And it had nothing to do with technology. It had nothing to do with the innovations of the internet. It, it actually predated, you know, mainstream television, uh, much less, and computers. So, um, you know, under the current uh, regime under Biden and under um, Gensler, who's just recently been approved, um, we're expecting that there will actually be hearings and there will actually be definitions instead of saying, hey, go back to the 1930s and fight it out in court. So that will be, uh, you know, there is currently a proposal by the longest standing commissioner on the SEC, Hester Peirce, um, who was a Republican appointee under Obama. So she's a little bit apolitical uh, to control as the chairman. Uh, so now you have a 3-2 majority for the Democrats. But, you know, for the most part, uh, I wouldn't say that it's really kind of a mainstream political issue. I think it's really a definition of trying to figure out what regulation um, to, to put this under. Because right now in the United States, you've got uh, the IRS since 2014 has said that Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies are property. Um, FinCEN has said it's money. Um and uh, the CTFC has implied that it's commodities uh, like gold. And so you have to have some agreement about what this is or else, you know, everybody has to kind of just guess on their own. And for the most part, what they've done is American entrepreneurs have left the United States and simply done everything outside of the United States uh, because they're just afraid that uh, they're going to get it wrong because there's no clarity about what's, what getting it right is. And so most jurisdictions in the United, outside of the United States and a few other uh, jurisdictions, um, you know, have said, no, we know what it is. I mean, Singapore has said what it is. And, you know, some other places have said, yes, if you do, the, if you do a, 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 a token generation event in our jurisdiction, here are the rules. Um, within the United States, Wyoming has said, um, we will exempt you as not being a security if you meet the following criteria, because the SEC has said Bitcoin is not a security. They said Ethereum is not a security, but they had this kind of vague definition that if you're, using a token to go and build something that doesn't exist, then it's a security, which is kind of an odd thing because that's what Kickstarter does, right? And, and Kickstarters are typically not considered securities because you don't have any equity interest in the company. And so we're in this very gray area right now that most uh, entrepreneurs simply don't deal with the U.S. and they simply go offshore and they, you know, they, they, they start uh, companies in Singapore. And uh, it's a shame because uh, this is all taxable revenue that, that is saying we want to be a U.S. company. And so there's been a flocking of companies to Wyoming because Wyoming, which two years ago was uh, two, three years ago, and forget when they had the first legislation, was, you know, um, very, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say anti-crypto. They just simply, their existing regulations said you couldn't even, you know, uh, donate Bitcoin. Um, and then that was considered money laundering of some form. And Caitlin Long, who is an incredibly bright woman, a friend of mine, um, who, um, you know, graduated from the University of Wyoming, uh, you know, went to New York, spent 25 years on Wall Street at uh, Morgan Stanley primarily, and uh, then and got into cryptocurrency early. She wanted to go and donate Bitcoin to her university. And they said, well, you can donate cash, but you know, from our reading, it's against the law for you to donate Bitcoin. She said, that's ridiculous. She moved back to Wyoming. She got that law changed and clarified in Wyoming. And while she was there, she decided that she could turn Wyoming into a crypto capital for the United States 
and she working with the you know Wyoming governor, the Wyoming legislature have now passed over 70 laws. Um, and there's been a boom of companies moving to Wyoming to do token sales there because Wyoming will go and say, under our securities administration, we will say, if you are this, this, and this, we will say you're not a security and you can go and raise, uh, you know, you can sell your token and will not be considered a security. It'll just be considered like a crowd sale, like a Kickstarter, and um, which is taxable, right? So it's 21% uh, uh, tax. Talk to me about, so- walk me through that because if I, if I have cash, right, and I wire it to mm-hmm. my Coinbase account, Right. And and then I buy cryptocurrency, and the cryptocurrency goes up, and then I want to sell the. I want to I want to take some of my earnings off the table. I pay capital gains tax on that. Yes. How 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 does that work? I guess when I transfer it out of Coinbase or well, no, this is taxable good. event. So the taxable event is anytime you trade it. Um, before 2018, it was only when you turn into fiat currency. But January 2018, they implemented something called the guilty tax, G-I-L-T-I. Um, I like to say it's you're guilty until proven innocent. And so if you bought Bitcoin for, say, $10,000, and then you end up saying, I think Ethereum is better, and you end up um, buying Ethereum at $1,000 um, you know, a year ago or whenever it was last $1,000, you have to immediately pay tax on your profit from Bitcoin from 1000 to Ethereum, even though you don't cash it in. You have to sell enough to be able to pay the tax on it. Uh, that happened in 2018. So, so when you had your, um, your, your difficulty with AT&T and when you, were, when you were robbed, you were robbed coins in native wallets. It didn't affect your Bitcoin or, or your Ethereum. Just really quickly, paint a picture for us of the different types of currencies and how they're generally used. Sure. So again, a blockchain is open source software. Bitcoin is open source software. And, you know, Satoshi came out and said, this is a peer-to-peer uh, money system, but, you know, it'll develop as the world wants to develop it. And, um, uh, Vitalik Buterin, uh, who I met before he did Ethereum, um, and uh, through Anthony Diorio, who's a good friend of mine in Toronto. And, uh, you know, I met him in sort of like the days just after he started the Toronto Bitcoin meetup, and he became a client and again, a good friend. And he introduced me to Vitalik. And actually, I think I met Vitalik through someone else around the same time. But anyway, it was a very small circle of people in Toronto at the time, late. 20, you know, uh, you know mid-2013. And, um, and, you know, Vitalik uh, came up with uh, a concept of being able to go and make Bitcoin, uh, you know, take some of the weaknesses of Bitcoin in terms of its programmability on chain and to create a new cryptocurrency that would actually allow you to create smart contracts on chain, whereas with Bitcoin, you can't do that. With Bitcoin, you have to create things off-chain that would then have smart contract ability or at least some form of that. And he really saw, I think brilliantly, at age 19 in his white paper, um, the use case for having uh, cryptocurrency actually you know, automatically enable um, commerce, right? So in other words, if you've got, you know, let's, let's take the shipping industry. In the shipping industry, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars globally. Um, 
you have this very archaic system where you have to have a bill of lading, you have to have like money wired here, and then you have to make sure everything is there. Um, you can put that all into a blockchain. And, but with Bitcoin, it's still on the blockchain just to enable the payment and it's not automatic. You can still be checking things and then sending other things. Now there are, there are innovators trying to build things on top of Bitcoin, um, but you know, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, kind of slowness and it's, uh, it's, it's well designed for what it's become, which is a store of value and of large movement of dollars. It's lousy at paying for a cup of coffee, which was his original uh, thought that someone could do. Because, you know, the fees have gone up as the security has gone up and uh, it's all based on algorithms. Um, Ethereum was originally, you know, sort of seen as a uh, and still really pretty much as as um, a world computer, as the ability to be able to go and program smart contracts that will self-execute. So that if I have a contract with you and it's in code, um, I don't need to have a court to enforce it. It basically says if this is done, this is done and this is done then the payment automatically goes through. So when the ship arrives, it'll go in, you'll scan things, see if that's what, what matches the scan that's programmed into the blockchain, and it'll automatically deliver the funds. And obviously, garbage in, garbage out, if, the, if everything is arrives is broken, but the code is still there, maybe it goes through, and then you have to have some dispute mechanism for, like, is it broken or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, we're still in the early days of this, but Ethereum, uh, you know, did do what was called an ICO back then, um, and that was uh, $18 million that they sold in, in, in Ethereum tokens um, at 30 cents a piece. You know, they recently reached the high of over $4,300 a piece. So obviously that was a very good uh, um, purchase um, of that. And, you know, the SEC said, well, it might have been a security at the time, but we're not going to prosecute them. They, of course, were largely Canadians who, uh, who did, did the uh, offering the sale out of Switzerland. Um, but they did not block U.S. investors. Um, the, you know, sort of, you know, it's because there's no regulations. It's hard to, it's hard to go and say what what prosecutions will be because there's no regulations, and so everybody is aching for other regulations. Let, let me read you a little snippet from Scott Galloway's uh, podcast this morning. He says, in sum, Facebook and YouTube have said we're all about creators. They could give a fuck about creators. There's millions of creators on these platforms that have realized you can't make any money. These guys, Facebook and YouTube, are going to starch all the margin from them. And occasionally, there'll be some very well-publicized examples of some crazy gamers or some crazy YouTubers that makes two, three million bucks. But meanwhile, Google is literally making two to three billion dollars every week. So, so here's my question. You've seen, you've been following this. I mean, you and I talked about this when you first got started in it. Um, so you've been following this and you've been your nose to the grindstone on this for over a decade now. I know of three, I can name three cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Dogecoin. That's all I know. So, <laughs> so I didn't know much about Dogecoin until Elon started tweeting about it. So, so the question is this. Is it the same thing as the as the social networks where everyone's sort of running in and two or three people get lucky and wind up becoming mega influencers and making all this money, but everyone else is just starching all the margin for, for somebody else to make the money? Or are most how many cryptocurrencies are out there and how many actually are valuable? Sure. So there's about 10,000 cryptocurrencies out there, and the vast majority have little to no value. 
Um, but you could say the same thing about startups, right? How many startups are out there that are, how many screenplays are out there? I mean, you know, so it's, it's, it's the, the, the long tail effect in anything. So um, you have a handful of cryptocurrencies that have an active community um, and, you know, and, and they, come, they go up and down over time. If you look at the top 10 cryptos in uh, 2013, I think Bitcoin and Litecoin are the only ones that are still in the top 10 today. In fact, I don't think Litecoin's even in the top 10 anymore. I think it's out of the top 10 now. And uh, there were other things called DevCoin. And, um, and um, you know, uh, Namecoin that, you know, are, are, you know, were in the top 10 then and that are, you know, infinitesimally small now because their communities kind of went away. I mean, Namecoin, for example, um, you know, its initial purpose was to, act as a token that you'd be able to go and build domain names on and have them be decentralized. It was a great idea. They just didn't, you know, execute well. And they, they had sort of like, you know, all these kind of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, people who came in and, and grabbed all these names and never did anything with them. And uh, it still exists, but it's like, you know, a fraction of what it was in terms of the, you know, value to a Bitcoin. Uh, on the other hand, there have been other ones that have now built on Ethereum, which is much more of an actionable uh, network. And, um, you know, there's three of them, one of which uh, I'm an advisor to called Butterfly Protocol, BFLY is the token. And, uh, you know, they ended up doing uh, a token sale. Uh, they don't call them ICOs anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, again, did it outside of the United States. And, uh, you know, they've been uh, kind of up and down since then because cryptocurrencies this year have been kind of wildly volatile. But, you know, even even at today's price, I think they're about three or four times the price of what they went out and they're still developing. Right. And so they're 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 letting people go in and be able to develop, um, you know, domains. So you could actually have you could go and buy the rights to dot Eric and it would then on a. Uh, a Chrome browser, you'd be able to go in and say, hey, go to, um, you know, just, just you know, download this, um, just like with a Brave browser, you have to download a, uh, an extension. Um, you just download this extension, you can go and get, you know, um, all these .eric addresses, if .eric has not been uh, purchased yet. And so uh, there's a few other uh, entities out there that are doing similar things. Uh, one has the .nft domain. But again, you need their extension. <laughs> and they're all let me out. let me ask you something about NFTs Ethereum. for a second. Sure. So so if I wanted, I you know I have a book out. I have a new book. If I wanted to sell my book as an NFT, how would I do that? So we're still early in the NFT process. I mean, you could literally just mint it and put it out there, and you just what do is that. What is minting? minting? Was minting is when you actually go and you issue the NFTs because they're non-fungible tokens. Bitcoin is a fungible token. One Bitcoin is just like another Bitcoin. They're completely exchangeable for one another. Um, NFT is a stands for non-fungible token. So on certain blockchains, you have the ability to go and mint a token that has completely different um, uh, capabilities, or not capabilities, but uh, properties than than other ones that. The original concept of an NFT was actually called a colored coin, where you took Bitcoin and you'd say, hey, I have one Bitcoin, which, you know, maybe back then was only worth $10 or something. And each Bitcoin has 100 million pieces uh, called Satoshis. And you would go and say, I'm going to take this Bitcoin. It's always going to be worth at least one Bitcoin. But I'm now going to go and put memos in the field saying, 
you know, access Eric's book or whatever. And if I had that particular coin with that memo field in it, I could go in and send it to a program that would then unlock the ability to, uh, to get your book. However, what because would it again, be? not, not PDF, a Mobi file, like what would they unlock? Whatever you want. So if, if you're getting now to the more uh, up-to-date version, which, is, which runs largely on Ethereum, uh, although anything running the EVM and other uh, you know, smart contract-oriented uh, uh, blockchains uh, is able to do this, as well as some that are, that are non-smart uh, contract, um, it, it's able to go in and create a um, secure. So it's still very early in terms of the, um, the technology. I mean, right now, if you look at the you know, $70 million NFT that, that you know, Beeple created, there's a unique um, token that is issued on Ethereum using the ERC721 standard, which is different than the ERC20 standard for fungible tokens. And you would have the private key that would unlock that and nobody else in the world could unlock it. So then with something like a book, if I were to sell it as an NFT, would I be selling the rights of the book or how would it? No, like you, can one sell whatever, you, you, you can sell whatever you wanted. I mean, the, the typical thing is you would sell perhaps, say, a thousand books and you would mint 1,000 NFTs. And so I'm actually an advisor and investor in a company called Rare, R-A-I-R. Uh, they're at rare.tech that is taking a watermarking technology on a blockchain that will um, simplify the um, security as well as, because right now, if you want to have a book out, you have, you have two choices. You either, well, I say three choices. You go to a publisher and they do everything for you and they take, you know, lion's share of the profits. And then even on the ebook sales, they have to give up, say, 30% to, uh, to Amazon before you then get your royalty, which, you know, is 10% or whatever it's going to be. Um, and uh, or you can go directly to Amazon and just sort of be under the great unwashed of the, the non-traditional publishers and they'll take 70 percent. And then you have to kind of fight out for visibility there. And if they don't like it, they can say, we're not going to put your book up. Um, or you can go and just have your website, put your PDF up and just hope these people don't copy it or put some kind of watermarking on there, which usually just hacks for so what Rare does is it enables you to still put something on your website as well as different portals that could be powering. Um, and you can say, I'm going to be issuing a thousand NFTs for my book. I'm going to be charging $20 for it. The way Rare works is you get to the standard, but again, it's customizable, is that uh, you'll get 90% of that. So you'll get, you know, uh, $18 out of the 20. Uh, Rare is the enabler will get 9%. And the node holders will get 1% because they're having to actually run the tokens that in a decentralized fashion generate the key that will let each individual person unlock the book. So you'll have a thousand separate tokens um, and those tokens each represent one copy of the book. Now you can serialize them and number them if you want. Um, like think of what a, the way a serograph would be in R. Um, you can have that maybe... Uh, a random 10 of them have uh, some goodies in it, like a kind of a Pokemon prize. And uh, that's, you know, that that's a rare video or it's a, uh, or it's a, an airdrop of, um, of, uh, you know, like a, you know, a, a free $795 seminar that you run or something like that. So, or you can have those goodies put into a rarer version of it. So maybe you only have 10 of the, you know, kind of super duper VIP version. Um, you know, like you used to be able to go have tiers on, on Kickstarter or Indiegogo 
uh, I think that's going to develop down to having tiers of NFTs. So we're really at the beginning of NFTs, and that's one reason why uh, Ethereum price has gone from $80 to over $4,000 in a little over a year was because the two hottest areas in, in tech right now, in blockchain tech, are NFTs, uh, which are largely Ethereum um, in terms of volume of sales, and, um, and DeFi. And both of those, though, have competitive blockchains and competitive solutions to, um, you know, Ethereum originally was sort of the faster, better, cheaper model. And now all of a sudden they've gotten so big that their, um, you know, fees have, have gone astronomical in some cases. I mean, sometimes it's going to cost you over $100 for a single NFT. What is crypto staking? Wow, you're really bouncing around here. Um, so crypto staking um, is where you're going and taking um, a cryptocurrency and they have a solution within the blockchain um, or within the company that, uh, that created the blockchain or the foundation that created the blockchain that you get rewarded for locking up a certain number of tokens. Um, I'd say one of the earliest ones to do that would be a company we worked with in the early days called Dash. Um, Dash basically had this thing called masternodes. And if you had a thousand masternodes, if you, you had a thousand coins, um, you'd be able to go and put them into a masternode that would then help secure the network. And it would also get, I think, like 7% a year of the mining rewards that would be distributed to the node holders. And so it's effectively a form of interest. Although the IRS has implied but not made any formal statements that it's considered ordinary income as opposed to capital gains. Is there an easy way for someone who's listening to this, they've got some risk capital, they got 10 grand, 50 grand, and they want to get it into crypto, but they don't want to spend a freaking week learning which app to use and what a cold wallet is and which one to buy and how to do it. Is there an easy way to go to just get some money into crypto and like saying, is there, that's like saying, is there an easy way to be an entrepreneur or an easy way to become a millionaire? Um, you know, it, it all depends what kind of time you're willing to invest uh, in terms of what your uh, returns are going to be like in general in life. Um, and uh, again, disclosure, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a CFA or anything. I'm just somebody with a lot of experience in the field. So these are only my uh, opinions and uh, do your own research. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if, if you got 10000 to invest and, uh, you know, you have no cryptocurrency at all, all, I would think the safest thing is just simply, you know, put half of it in Bitcoin and half of it in Ethereum. Those are the large caps. Those are the ones that aren't, aren't going to go to zero. And, uh, you know, right now there's been a bit of a pullback in both of them uh, because of the, uh, the tweet that Elon did saying he was going right. to, you know, stop taking Bitcoin um, for, for buying Teslas and a complete overreaction, I thought. So, uh, I'm still, you know, firmly the belief that Bitcoin will be over 100,000 by the end of the year, because that's about where we are in the four year cycles. Um, I then think that for the most part, um, when it hits those highs, um, you should take a little bit off the table and buy some back when it hits the lows, which are usually, it's kind of an every other year phenomenon. So you, you so far have hit your all-time highs of the cycle in 2013, 2017, and 2021, and you hit your lows of the cycle in uh, you know 2015 and in 2019. And so the odds are, based on a lot of you know technical analysis, that uh, we'll continue to hit a higher high by the end of this year, 2021, and then we'll go and hit you know the low for the next cycle um, in 2023, and then hit another high in 2025. 
what do you like for what which uh, app do you like and which cold wallet do you like oh so um you know it all depends on what you're using it for i mean for apps um you know we have a a, a client uh um, called Abra, um, A-B-R-A, and they're, they're a good app. Um, they let you go in and sort of uh, have a wallet solution and exchange solution all in one. Um, they're, you know, Silicon Valley based, and they also have a capacity for like, you know, earning interest and, uh, and um, also um, uh, taking out loans. So they're kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of the things you might want to do in, uh, in crypto. Um, and they're, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, companies, so they're not like some crazy offshore thing. Um, not that everything offshore is crazy. Um, and then for uh, wallets, uh, you know, typically you're going to have your long-term holdings. Um, if you've got, you know, more than like, say, $50,000 worth of crypto, you want to keep it typically in a hardware wallet. Uh, so I like Ledger. Um, that's a company out of France. It's been around for a while. And then Trezor was sort of the original one. Um, either one of them are very secure. Repeat uh, also the second because I didn't quite hear the second. Trezor, T-R-E-Z-O-R. Okay. And Thank then there's you. also a company that, uh, uh, you know, I was an early advisor to called Engrave that, uh, um, you know, they did a uh, uh, Indiegogo last year to sort of fund their, um, their initial hardware wallets. And uh, they'll be shipping them within the next few months. Well, Michael, uh, you know, it has been uh, very interesting as usual. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us. Where can people get a hold of you? What's going on with the conference? When, when is Coin Agenda striking sure. it back up again? Sure. So um, delighted to say we, ha we haven't announced this formally. I think it's on the website now, but we, we, we're going to put the announcements out in the next couple of days. We will be having three physical events. Our last physical event was Coin Agenda Caribbean last year in February, just before everything locked down. And uh, we had to have our uh, Coin Agenda lo uh, Global uh, last uh, October virtually because, you know, Las Vegas had not opened up. So we have uh, an annual global event in Las Vegas that runs, you know, sort of adjacent to the Money 2020 shows. Um, and so we will be having that this year on, um, let me make sure I get the date right. Um, it is the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at the end of October, and that is uh, the 25th to 27th, October 25th to 27th, and it should be up on uh, coinagenda.com. Uh, we will also be having um, our fifth annual, so that's our eighth annual uh, Coin Agenda um, in global. It will be our fifth annual Coin Agenda Caribbean um, in San Juan. I started the first um uh, cryptocurrency conferences in the Caribbean when I when I moved down to San Juan and it's our fifth year. And that's going to be uh, very heavy on the NFT area because we're going to have it a week after Art Basel this year. And it's going to be December 6th through 8th in San Juan. So go to Art Basel and, you know, check out the NFT uh, art and other art there and then hop down to uh, San Juan for, you know, beautiful weather and uh, uh, we, we're going to have some great speakers there. Um, and then uh, we are going to be holding our first um, coinage of the Europe since 2018. We usually just do Europe and Asia during uh, bull markets. Um, and uh, we'll be having that in Monaco. And that is uh, at the end of September. I believe the tentative dates are the 28th to 30th, but we have not confirmed them yet. They'll be on the site shortly, but they will be in Monaco right after the Yacht Show. Do you have a venue for uh, Vegas? 
Yes, we do. Uh, New York, New York. To be the and what about eighth year and every year, every year we had a different venue. <laughs> what about Puerto Rico? Uh, we are going to be in San Juan. We are talking to two different uh, um, places. Uh, we are most likely to be in the El San Juan Hotel, but we haven't confirmed it yet, but it'll probably be in Isla Verde. Great. Which is right near awesome. the airport in the city. Well, Michael, great catching up. On the beach. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, thank you, Eric. To master B2B lead generation, you can listen to the first chapter of my new book, The Digital Pivot, for free at digitalpivotbook.com.